Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Paul Barron, CEO, founder, author, filmmaker of Foodable Network on the state of food journalism and how he is expanding internationally with different data-driven solutions. Let's begin. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Doing excellent. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Thanks for agreeing to join us. It's, oh, I'm very excited to explore food media because we haven't done that before, so you're the first. Thank you for joining. I'm the fir- Okay, great. So I'm a, uh, <laughs> I'm a guinea pig on, on food media. I love that. Okay. Well, food's all about experimentation, so let's see where it takes us. Paul, just for people who don't know about Foodable TV, if you can please just start off by providing background, how you started and how how, how sure. Foodable TV works, looks today. Yeah, uh, actually, the, the kind of the genesis of the idea started about uh, really about 15 years ago. I was in what is, I guess, considered traditional publishing, which is online and magazines and also in the food space um, really since the mid 90s. And we started using uh, online as a, a big part of the movement for uh, food media. It was slow going at first, but it kind of got us going, you know, in the early 2000s. Finally, we started seeing a little bit more online traffic. And I just knew there was something bigger and there'd be eventually a bigger play. Uh, so obviously, the uh, the advent of social media and the iPhone and a bandwidth in general kind of started me thinking uh, to go in the direction of a video first uh, product. And that's where Foodable Network was born. Uh, so foodabletv.com is is our website, even though it's not necessarily our primary distribution point. Understood. And, and you guys cover everything from events and then the editorial and everything within the network, correct? We do. We we have uh, on the show or on the network, we have 15 shows and that includes podcasts of video uh, shows. We also have a, uh, a full-blown kitchen and bar studio here at our facilities. Uh, and then we do a ton of editorial, expert write-ups, events, things of that nature, everything from festivals all the way down to our own events at uh, places like Foodable I.O., which is our big event in Chicago. But yeah, we cover the gambit on foods from chefs to fast food is really kind of our shtick and uh, been doing that for many years. How did you come to the point of saying, okay, now this is like a viable business, media business that you can grow your team and expand to, into diversifying into events and shows and sure. everything else? Yeah. For us, it was a, a unique and different journey. My background has been in technology, 
um, literally from leaving college. Uh, you know, went to work for Microsoft was my first job, one of my first jobs, and I spent a lot of time in understanding how tech was used to move business forward. That kind of got me into publishing, obviously leveraging my tech background. And because of that, you know, technology was what I focused on uh, really for my 25 years or so uh, in food publishing. So tech was the genesis, and that got us into using social as the primary tool for distributing content. And this was in 2008, 2009. Uh, we developed a very unique proprietary system in targeting audience. And uh, once I was able to do that, I realized, hey, this is this is a great vehicle for vehicle for distributing content and. That was really where uh, we engineered the concept of Foodable uh, as the way it's built right now, which is, you know, it's kind of a cross hybrid between a publishing company, a production company, and, you know, a Hollywood movie studio. It's interesting you say that. Um, I'll come back to the business structure just briefly, but um, just to take a step back, when you think about content distribution when you first started, how do you define like the type of content that you distributed? Because from, I guess, looking at it from the outside point of view, I remember that a lot of people used to first get recipes from magazines and then that sort of translated online. And then we've got the whole movement with the TV chefs and everything else. How do you, did you, how was it back in the 2008? Uh, it was very slow going, you know, magazines and the food network were really the only real way to get uh, content out to the masses, uh, to get content into the trade, it was magazines were, you know, the big uh, killer app, so to speak, in 2008. And some websites, you know, there, there were a few, a handful of websites that were doing a good job with it. Obviously, social media was still very resistive at that point for publishers. I was kind of one of those rebels that uh, decided to bet my entire career on it <laughs> and and did so but that was that was really it you had um uh websites and magazines and a couple of handful of events and that was really how you communicated uh to to your audience so communicating recipes communicating ingredients is that would you say that would be the uh-huh. that's the majority yeah that was it that was it you know social came along obviously in in 2000 Really around 2006 and seven, we started seeing some, you know, some uh, testing with it. We did a lot of start stops even before that with uh, things like podcasts. Um, and, you know, it just it, very slow going. But I knew that eventually it, it would definitely be the way to, to handle distribution of content in the future. And do you think offline played a role in online consumption? Because um, like even... There was there was the point where there was a lot of TV shows around like MasterChef and everything else where uh-huh. it sort of made the food industry sexy and you know the the whole point of cult of personalities and and the different types of dishes and variety that people could do from home. Do you think that played a role in in, in blowing up the food media industry? No doubt. You know, Food Network, I would say, is the reason that uh, the industry is where it is today, is the exposure just of the the food business as a whole. And, and maybe it, not necessarily just Food Network. I mean, you can go all the way back to Julia Childs and her cooking show. There's always been kind of that love affair with food. The problem was, is there wasn't a distribution mechanism that was out there that could truly bring food to life. And that was where video became 
you know, a, a massive play. And then obviously, you know, the internet just in general and much less mobile was not ready for video consumption because of the bandwidth required to really do great quality video. So cable news or cable TV and traditional broadcast TV was really the only vehicles out there. So I think, you know, Food Food Network did an amazing job at getting things rolling. You know, obviously now where the digital age is today, it's a complete new playground for really for all digital media in general. So with with um, with that, I guess it's ob- um, just to make it obvious, you, you work on the B two B side, though, and a lot of people when they think about food media, they they think about it from a B two C side, and you, you know we've seen right we've seen like Delish dot com and those type of companies uh, started to show the experimentation behind food with the like like you have with the bar studio, they have like, their kitchen and showing the recipes and stuff like that, so. Um, just a few uh-huh. parts to this question. How do you? How are you starting to look at the B two B side and, and trying to cater to that audience? And and how do you find the sure. content creation process helping with audience development? Well, it it has changed a lot in the you know in the four years we've been rolling here on Foodable. And what's happened is you know there was a time when we felt like the the trade side of it or the B2B side would would kind of consistently be the the big play into food media, you know, because there's there were a few big players uh, out there. But what happened about three years ago is the the cord cutting began and the shift of both food media from B2B to B2C became real. And now our content is equally consumed by consumers and food enthusiasts as much as it is by a chef in a major brand like the Four Seasons or somewhere. And I think all of that has come about really because of the uh, the move from a digital standpoint of cord cutting. And that is obviously YouTube is a, a huge uh, reason for many uh, of these vehicles beginning to work because it trained our society to consume video. And of course, that's moved us into other areas, you know, such as OTT and, you know, non-traditional ways of getting content, uh, you know, that five years ago didn't even exist, much less have the power it does on our society as it does today. It's interesting that you say that BDP actually played a role in in adopt making a mass adoption in B2C. With, with that, I guess, so we have the divide, like like you said, that there's there's the more casual people or casual cooks who want to mm. do more professional food, they want to prepare food and and consume that media. How do you see the current divide now? Right, because there's there the, the two different audiences, but essentially they're looking at the same thing. I guess. What are your thoughts around that? Yep. Well, we were whether it was just pure luck and brilliance <laughs> uh, or a combination, what we realized early is that the ticket to great quality content was using great quality subject matter experts. Well, that is chefs, brand leaders, people that are building food, grow the food, make the food. Those are the stories. And whether you're a chef in, you know, in Sydney, Australia, or you're a chef in New York, you look and watch those kinds of stories, but it's also because of the uh, awareness that the Food Network helped place on the American people and really the global uh, consumer is now everyone is as knowledgeable about food as they've ever been, in some cases, maybe as knowledgeable as a restaurant. 
uh, operator. And because of that, it, it kind of leveled the field between the consumption of content being only professionals to the consumption of content now being professionals and enthusiasts. And there's just a ton of those enthusiasts out there really across the world. I mean, food is, is now a new form of entertainment. Obviously, you can tell with the number of food shows that are all over cable or Netflix or Amazon Prime TV or Hulu, you name it, food is one of the center components, much like sports, you know, for most uh, entertainment components. And how do you find that now? Is that, do you think it's oversaturated? Because like, like you said, a lot of it is relied on influencers around portraying their stories. And there's more and more chefs coming into the, the scene as well, which are being recognized. How do you find that now? Actually, I'm not sure that it's oversaturated. I, I actually think it's underserved. Right. And the reason is what's happening is the dynamic shift in consumption. All right. So, uh, and I get asked this question a lot is when you look at consumers and operators alike, here in the U.S., we have 14 million restaurant mm-hmm. operators, people that are in the business. And before that, you know, before the digital age, at best, you were probably reaching 10% of the market. And at the very best now, we're probably only reaching 20 to 25% of the market with a smartphone in the pocket of every person. So mass uh, consumption is primed for media right now. And people go, how, how would that be the case? Well, uh, you know, when you just look at the food business alone, just let's just take the 14 million. You know, now we are in a position where the TV or the device, the audio device, like you're listening to this podcast right now, you might be listening to it on iTunes or Google Play or TuneIn or iHeartRadio. You can kind of start to see the distribution and dissemination of content starts to move. With distribution and dissemination of content at scale across a lot of consistent and quality networks like a Spotify or an iTunes, your scale of audience is going to grow you know, exponentially. And we think that's what's happening. And with the exponential growth of audience, the problem is there's not enough good content out there. So there'll be a stage where there's a bunch of shoddy content that will fill the backfill. This is exactly what happened on YouTube. It's exactly what happened on Twitter. It all started the same way. Once the pipe was open, uh, the charlatans come out, the shoddy content comes out, and eventually the artisans and the quality take over. Because eventually the consumers will go, ah, look at what really is here. And now the pipelines are set. Every person, you know, in most modern countries has a TV, uh, you know, uh, mini computer in their pocket and have kind of completely displaced the idea of uh, tuning in to a show, you know, for uh, other than live sports. So I think the opportunity is going to be absolutely unbelievable in the next 10 years so you still think that there's a scale game that to be played in the food industry it's not it hasn't matured yet because there's other industries where they're like focus on micro influencers focus on the quality of engagement because it's understandable. you think that it it might be still a scale game in reaching to more people yeah i think so because uh and even with within scale of the industry when you think about especially food gosh every person on the planet is going to uh, you know, consumes this every day. So 
uh, it's it becomes an artistry of sort. We start to see major media companies, whether it's New York Times or CNN or any of those, who have already integrated food into their uh, publishing component and into their array of, of content. And it's at a scale that is probably as much as politics, sports, entertainment, et cetera. So now you've scaled food. And you've got, you know, what is going to be 10 billion people on this planet and interest in food is only going to accelerate. So we think that there's going to be an op, an absolute bonanza in, in terms of where that market is going. The key is going to be on what I call decentralized distribution. That's going to be the model of the future for uh, content distribution. Can you elaborate on your definition of that? Sure. Most companies that are considered new media companies, air quotes there, have built a website and expect everybody to come to them on that website, have created an email and expect everybody to open that email in their box. I believe that the future of content is going to uh, come to the consumer where they are. So if they are on Netflix, it will be in the form of a docuseries. If they are on Hulu, or Amazon Prime, or Twitter, or Facebook, or the next five social media networks that come out after that, or the next 25 different OTT products that come out, when I say OTT over the top, whether it's Roku, or Amazon Firestick, or Apple TV, all of those vehicles are now a distribution point. And it's only going to grow. You've got Sling TV coming into the game. You've got Pluto coming into the game. There's just so many opportunities. Now, the key for all of this happening, and this is where we kind of got ahead of the game before I think we beat everybody to the punch, is library. You know, so it's uh, like a studio. You know, the reason that Disney is who they are is because they have this massive library. Well, that's exactly our case. You know, we've spent almost six years producing content at a breakneck pace, four years in actually working a strategy to distribute it. And now we're sitting on, you know, 50,000 hours of premium food content in video. And because of that, we can almost tell a story on any topic out there, add in some things around data, which is our kind of our Trojan horse. And all of a sudden you've got a product that is really unmatchable. But I think that's going to be the distribution model of the future is, uh, not so much websites. I mean, if you look at Tasty and BuzzFeed and uh, Now This and many of the others that have built on social, I don't, I'm not promoting that you build a business on social. I think you use social for what it is. It's just one of the tools you use today to help handle your distribution. There will be many more tools coming down the pipe in the future as I well. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Do you think that other existing publishers might think of food publishing as Okay, there's 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 certain types of common recipes here. There's certain types of year that people usually create these type of recipes, and they might have a spin to it. What are your thoughts around that thought? Um, do you think that's the case around food media publishing? Or I know that, and, and then there's the aspect of you know chefs, top chefs and celebrities going through their journey about cooking a food and, and portraying a country. Do you think there's any, do you think that's a limit to it, yeah. or, did, or how do you explain if someone was going to if you're going to speak to someone about food media, how would you explain that to them? Well, I think food media, like many aspects of media, has really kind of taken on a whole new com uh, complexion. You know, in the past, food media, whether you were Bon Appetit magazine or you were Food, uh, food Network, um, 
recipe was kind of the the origination point. It was the thing that that you built your business on was recipes. You know, the celebrity chef came along, and now all of a sudden it's that. Now, and, and I think both of those are failed, you know, failed potential media constructs only because there is a limitation on how you can scale that because uh, there's only so many ways you can do certain things. You know, obviously food is an exploration, but in working with certain ingredients, you're you're only going to work with certain ingredients a few thousand ways and, and then it doesn't scale beyond that. So then you run into the aspect of, okay, well, is it, is the strategy a news strategy? Do I become the news orientation? So I think that it's a combination. You have to have the ability to do news, manage trends and insights of what's happening in the space, which is going to happen all around the big brands, which consumers want to know about as much about Chipotle and what's happening over there as they want to know about the next great restaurant opening in New York by Daniel Belug. It, the, the, so I think the appetite it, it starts to really grow and the storytelling has to become so much more compelling. And I think that's where publishers will separate from the pack. So it's much like what is what is happening in digital uh, news today. If you look at some of the leaders who are starting to really make a difference and essentially overtaking uh, what is considered the mainstream media, you know, for CNN to be outflanked by YouTube channels, that just doesn't make any sense to the common media person. But the reality is, is that these smaller companies are so much more nimble and have the ability to move in so many different ways that they almost become impossible. It's like a gnat fighting Goliath. You can't hit it, but it's still there. And I think that's where uh, we'll see a lot of food media start to really, and, and niche will be part of that of course, but I think there will be some powerhouses that come out of it. And hopefully they'll learn from their mainstream counterparts' mistakes and continue to innovate uh, in terms of giving the audience what they want. What are some of the directions that food like publishing is taking? Like I, I, You said that there was restaurants and you know, with those traditional recipes, but and I believe on your website you use and some of the trends you, you were speaking about on, on your channel, which we'll go into you're going you're talking about different directions. What are some of the directions that are some of the nimble companies that you've seen are taking at the moment besides yours? Sure. I, th I think for any great publisher and, and or producer of content in the future, data has to be their backbone. Uh, 20 years ago for reporting, it had to be research and sourcing. Uh, today, it, it's all about data. And we have a tool that we, we started building actually before the network called Foodable Labs, and Foodable Labs essentially is a part algorithm and uh, keyword index that we've built around food media and food in general to track trends, uh, track personalities, track brands. And what it enables us to do is start to see the percolation of certain particular trends, certain particular brands. Uh, these might be ingredient trends. These might be news trends. Here's a good example in Foodable Labs when we uh, were here in the U.S. and uh, watching the election unfolding before our very eyes. We looked at our data to determine how the restaurant operators of the United States were going to vote. And much like what you're seeing right now with Cambridge Analytics and the news here with what's happening with Facebook and you know some of the, the dirty dealings they did around data – the point is, is there's a lot of public data out there of what people's opinions are or what they're talking about. 
what they like, what kind of wine, what kind of food. But we did that in the early age uh, or in the early days of the election, and we predicted a win for Trump based on the food service industry, who was slanting toward Trump being a winner in the election. Sure enough, you know, uh, four months later, he took office. So that was an example of how data, whether you like that model or not, the idea was that we got to see what the real pulse of the industry was and the real pulse of what consumers were talking about. And when you have that kind of data, you can start to report on content and information that makes much more sense to the average viewer, reader, or consumer of, of content. You're no longer feeding the news to them. You're only adding to their diet of good content that they're already uh, enjoying or researching or reading a lot more of or watching a lot more of uh, because they're talking about it so much on social media. Such as are you looking at to make these predictions or how are you? So, yeah. so we built a, a database of terms that is essentially kind of our golden chest of what's happening in the restaurant industry. And we, we add to this thing on a day-to-day basis. We look at search terminology of what's being used on Google. We look at social, uh, and then we basically create an, uh, a data cube around those terms. Right. And then we build an algorithm to go out and look for that data. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, it kind of gives us a pulse of what's happening around a specific thing. We don't have it on every aspect of the of all things in society. We have it on food because that's our expertise area. And actually, you know, I, I built this. I've built this this data set over my career, because when I started using search before Google, by the way, when Alta Vista was the search engine, we were using search engine and keyword tagging even back in AOL uh, era. So I started building a massive database of terms, you know, over fifteen years ago, and. Uh, that was everything from key chefs to brands to key menu items, uh, certain culinary aspects of our business, certain styled trends uh, that are being done in food, as well as uh, aspects around a whole uh, subculture of, of you know nomenclature that's used in a common language in the industry. So by doing that, it's enabled us to really come up with some pretty interesting stuff. And social has been basically just a huge fire hose of information. You know, you never had access to, you know, a 50 million water cooler conversations uh, before Twitter. You never had access to 50 million uh, sharing of kids' photos or your kids' photos for the weekend at the soccer practice until Instagram. You know, so now we can look at the amount of content that's coming through that, apply it to our data cube and start to really understand what's happening in the industry and make predictions based on good you know, good, solid information around a topic. And the way that we looked at Chipotle was that we saw brand sentiment falling over a period of time. So when brand sentiment is falling, that's a publicly traded company. Believe me, you're going to see a management change because that's going to affect price at their stock level. So a CEO change was inevitable, but we predicted it. And sure enough, they hired the Taco Bell guy about six weeks later. Same thing with Chipotle in the sense that they were going to have to diversify menu because they were losing market share to other companies who had diversified many menu. Chipotle's kind of known for their simplicity. Uh, so again, we were correct in that. They introduced tacos uh, back into the market. We've had predictions on Amazon. We don't, we don't do that show a lot because it takes a lot of work in sifting through data. 
I wish we could hire more data scientists to uh, to do that, but it does help us with being able to come up with some really compelling uh, stories. How does how does this help you package your your, your products and and what you're offering to to the B two B sector? It helps, but at this point, unfortunately, the the advertisers and the sponsors just aren't smart enough to even understand how this makes a difference in their business. Even if they have the information, I'm not sure they do anything with it. At least in the food service industry, we just haven't seen a, a sophistication level for understanding how to take real active information from the industry and then turn around and you know maximize that use of that information to build a business. We know that it's there, but you know we're not marketing you know consultants where we would say, hey, we're finding these kinds of trends in a certain type of beverage, or we're finding these trends in a certain competitor that may be occurring. They're just not reactive enough yet, but I think that time is going to happen because we'll see some pretty big changes in food, you know, here in the next few years, mainly because of the um, the whole transition between transparency in food, which is going to be important, but also the pressure that the consumers are putting on these operators. And it's just like pull through. If enough consumers push on something, believe me, it's happening right now with Facebook. If, uh, if enough consumers push on something on a topic, but because of a company behaving badly, you're going to get reaction. And that'll happen all the way down the food chain into restaurants. So an example, a chef changes something on a menu. If his customers push back enough, guess what? That menu item's coming back. So you, now that's a simple way of explaining how you know cause and effect work. But imagine that around products. And we think that is kind of the future. Because so much waste is occurring on companies building a product that may or may not ever do very well. And they wonder why sales are not great by the restaurant industry, you know, where a chef may not buy a certain type of pork. Well, the trend may have already been decided way before that product ever even made it to market. So, you know, I don't know that publishers and content creators can be also data scientists for the future, but I think it will be. Very, very important for us to have a lot of that kind of knowledge, along with maybe some key partners that will eventually may maybe start to create strategic alliances around where advertising goes away in its entirety. And it all is based off of the integration of content and story based on data. So how are current sponsors and advertising buying into Food Table TV and, and what you guys are doing? How are they seeing your vision now? So we have um, we have a variety of streams of revenue. Uh, we have uh, obviously traditional advertising. You just buy an ad on on a podcast or a video. Pretty straightforward. That's easy to understand. We have integrated or native uh, storytelling. It's where we integrate the product and the story. Uh, we still keep it editorial, but we the subject matter expert or the subject matter of the content might be directed at a uh, supplier. Those are the two traditional models. Uh, additionally, we, of course, have events, which now we do a lot of on-demand products. So that's also another revenue stream for us in terms of paid content, which we believe you know, uh, will eventually be maybe as much as 50% of our revenue is paid, you know, paid access. I think that time is coming. Uh, you know, as long as you've got premium and really high quality and super engaged audience, uh, data is the other uh, part of our revenue, which we do sell uh, quite a bit in terms of our reports and our analytics. That is uh, really kind of the 
the nutshell of of all the tools. We have some new ones coming down the pipe I can't talk about, but uh, there are some other products that we think are going to be pretty big in the future. What's the biggest What's the biggest proportion at the moment, like out of the products that you mentioned, the models that you mentioned? You know, it is slowly. I, I would say in 2018, based on our predictions, we think that integrated storytelling is going to take over uh, the advertiser. Advertising has been number one for us, you know, just traditional advertising. But we think this year, integrated storytelling is going to take the number one slot. So if you mix all that together, you know, in, in, the, in terms of the different data streams, you know, whether it's 30 or 40% in, in traditional advertising or what we call traditional advertising, but production and content creation is moving fast up the ladder. Uh, data is also um, becoming a, a pretty intriguing uh, business model for us as well. That's that's promising to hear about data and how you guys are moving forward, looking forward on that. Um, so, do you see any other trends that are going to be impactful for the food media publishing space this year? Like there's been, for example, in terms of interactive storytelling, storytelling, the use of AR and VR, do you think that's going to be applicable? What what, what other trends in technology are you seeing that might be something worth exploring? I think uh, AR, VR, a few years away, but you know there are some opportunities there, I think, for immersive storytelling. That'll probably happen in remote news before it happens in food, but it could happen to, you know, all of this will depend on how fast the iPhone and the Android products uh, accelerate in terms of the products and apps that are available. But that could be an opportunity. The cool thing is, is as you're building that kind of library, I think that's going to be an important aspect of understanding if it's a content that people will consume, because that's really going to be the end of the day. Will people use it? Otherwise, it's like Facebook Live, you know, it's here for a little bit and then it's just gone. The other thing that I think is coming is licensing. And, you know, this is probably something I think a lot of people overlook. We do it now. It's a very small part of our business. We don't even put it on the balance sheet as, as a revenue center. But I think in the future it will be. The key around licensing, I think, is as the distribution outposts multiply depending on if there isn't a mass consolidation, and I think this will depend if someone like Apple comes in and buys Netflix or Disney decides to just sweep up the whole industry. If we see you know, 15 on-demand networks like Netflix's, Hulu's, Sling TVs, et cetera, if we, if we see 15 of those, there's going to be a massive appetite for content. And I think that's where licensing will play into it you know, and for us, video and even on podcasts, you know, I think podcast networks will be next, uh, whether it's someone like Spotify or if some of these, uh, you know, upstarts start to spin the podcast model more so. I mean, it's kind of ironic that podcast, yeah, I did my first podcast in I think 2006. It was brand, it, you know, podcasting was just getting off the ground. Nobody had ever even heard of it. And it failed miserably, you know, because we, we couldn't get anybody to listen because nobody knew what it was and much less how to get to the content, you know. But I think now, you know, it's finally come of age. And I think that's another big opportunity, you know, for uh, for publishers is is uh, what we're doing right here is is putting a, a content out on a podcast. That's awesome. And and what else, just to uh, wrap things up, what are some of the 2018 issues that you're working on? I know you said you can't mention the new product releases, but... Are there any exciting campaigns that you're looking forward to, um, looking forward to, or anything that you want to be doing more of this year? Sure. 
Uh, well, we're releasing a lot more content on Amazon Prime TV. So we have we have a ton of content over there on Amazon Prime right now. It's doing really well. We think, you know, and we've got our first documentary out on Amazon Prime as well. It'll also hit Netflix. You know, with our our content, I think we'll start to see more and more of that consumption. But for us, I think it's more international opportunities um, because we are seeing some good numbers from the UK. So the expansion of our content into the global market, I think, will be a big play for us this year. And I think what we are looking at in terms, it's kind of ironic, it's its kind of the complete opposite of that, which is the localized events. And that's what Foodable IO is. Uh, we do this event in Chicago, it's, it's going on its fourth year, but we're, this year we'll be doing more events. And one of them is going to be right here in Miami, you know, in our hometown, but it's localized, it's activation events. So it's really tied into bringing the local operator. When I say operators, the local restaurant businesses into the mix, but also the influences, influencers and enthusiasts uh, are tied into that uh, as well. So those are the big initiatives for us in 2018. That's very exciting to hear. And like, I think I've seen it as well, like offline events. It's it's another um, decentralized distribution point, and not relying so much on platforms. So, it, I think it's gonna it's, it's being a big part, and I I only wish you guys the utmost success, and and hope your international exp- expansion only continues. So, thanks for thanks so much for your time in joining us. So, hey, thanks a lot for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Let me know if I can help you again. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time. It's tax refund time. Don't waste your money. Switch to Straight Talk Wireless and get 25 gigs of high-speed data for 45 bucks a month on America's best networks. Plus, save 200 bucks on a Galaxy S9 with in-store activation. See terms at straighttalk.com. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.